Welcome to Alphabet Soup, a podcast where we're going to work our way through a wide variety of biblical topics using the alphabet. Our goal, of course, is to understand the Bible better, but we also want to find ways in which Scripture applies to our daily lives. So with that intro, let's get to it. Welcome to I is for Imputation. Once again, I'm going to apologize. I'm in a room that will eventually be Pam's sewing room and my office slash recording desk. But right now, it is full of some boxes and some uh, cabinets and, and stuff that is waiting final placement. When we get done with the living areas, I'll come in here and get to work setting this up. In the meantime, it is bare, and my guess is that the... Uh, that you're going to hear the, the kind of slight echo until, until I can get some sound deadening material in here. And the other thing is, if you're listening to this in real time, you know how crazy hot it is. We've now set a record 20 straight days of temperatures over 110. However, most of them are over 115. It's going to be 117 today. It's just flat miserable. And the house air conditioning system doesn't do a great job with this small room off to the off to the side, off of the kitchen. Um, that said, we're going to persevere. Here is I is for imputation. It's a word that you're probably not familiar with. It's not used much at all anymore. A little bit in the legal profession, but mostly discussed in theology. And it is a concept word. It's not like car or tree or boat. It doesn't describe something physical. It describes a concept as does, for example, the words democracy or uh, economics or those concept words can be difficult to define and, and difficult to process. We're used to words like democracy and economics in those because they get used and, and so we have a better sense of what they mean. Not so much then with the word imputation. So here's my suggestion. There will be no quiz. Just sit back and listen and uh, see if you can follow along. Don't work too hard at it. I'm gonna, I'm gonna do my best to put it in a logical order and put the cookies on the bottom shelf. You'll decide if I was successful at that. But, but don't stress about this one, okay? I'm, I'm gonna guess that it will um, take your head someplace it hasn't been before. That most of you have not heard or used the word imputation in connection with uh, theology, and if you have, it's been very briefly cursory. Imputation means to credit something to someone's account. Uh, an hour or so ago on my way home from the gym, I stopped at the hardware store and bought a paintbrush because later today I've got some touch-up painting to do. I did not pay cash for that brush. I put it on my debit card. Uh, I think it's pretty cool that I can tap. Think about how far we've come. Anyhow, that charge then, I did not pay. It was imputed to my account. And later today or tomorrow will show up on my bank statement. I took the paintbrush. The charge for it was imputed to my account. Imputation means to formally, officially, charge someone's account for something. There are two kinds of imputation, real and uh, judicial. Real imputation is, I took the paintbrush. 
Therefore, the charge was imputed to my account. That was a real transaction. Judicial is an imputation where I didn't actually do it, but it is imputed to my account. The best example of that in the Bible is when Paul writes to Philemon about Onesimus. Do you remember the story? Onesimus was one of Philemon's slaves in the city of Colossae. Onesimus ran away, and apparently on his way out the door, he grabbed a bundle of cash. He worked his way to Rome, which was probably in an effort to get lost in the crowd. Rome was a huge city, and and he could get lost there. But somehow God in his gracious sovereignty brought him into contact with the Apostle Paul, who was there at the same time. In fact, Paul was in prison. I wish we knew the details. We don't. But Onesimus, the slave, the runaway slave, got saved through the ministry of the Apostle Paul, who was under a kind of house arrest at the time. After some short period of time, it's decided that the right thing is for Onesimus to return to his former master, Philemon. Uh, that is, uh, that's a risky proposition because according to Roman law, uh, Philemon can have Onesimus put to death. Paul, therefore, writes a letter to Philemon saying, he left as a runaway slave, he now comes back as a brother in Christ. So please receive him with all the grace that Christ has received us. Boy, there's a good sermon in there, isn't there? Um, He says in the course of this very short letter, the book of Philemon is one chapter. It's only like 30-some verses, as I recall. He says to Philemon, whatever he has taken. Now, Paul knows that he took money. This is just sort of a rhetorical device. Whatever he has taken, credit to my account. And the Greek word there is impute. It is the same word that we're going to see later on is used for sin and salvation. Impute it, charge it to my account, suggesting that he'll pay whatever debt that is. Paul probably says that um, kind of tongue-in-cheek because he goes on to say, I won't mention the fact that you owe me your very spiritual life. Apparently, Paul led Philemon to Christ. So, Charge Onesimus's debt to my account, never mind the fact that, that you owe your eternal life to me. Love it. Anyhow, that is judicial imputation. Something being credited to someone, me or you, that we're not actually responsible for. Real imputation and judicial imputation. Another example of uh, judicial might be Uh, I meet my friend at the restaurant. We sit down and have breakfast together and get up and go up to the register to pay. And he takes my bill and says, I got this. That is judicial imputation. He is taking responsibility for my debt, the pancakes and eggs and bacon that I had for breakfast. Okay, real and judicial imputation. We deal with real imputation all the time. We just don't think of it as imputation. Um, we put something on our debit card or charge card, or and that is, in fact, imputation, even though we're not typically using that word or thinking about that word and its uh, concept. We just hold out the piece of plastic and it's done. Now, let's move to Scripture. There are three major imputations when we talk theology and the Bible and our salvation. 
The first imputation is our sin. Our sin is imputed to us. We are counted as guilty before God. The second imputation is our sin imputed to Christ, so that when he died on the cross, he paid our debt. Huh? The third imputation is the crediting of Christ's righteousness to us. The key passage, uh, we're going to talk very briefly about numbers two and three. We're going to spend most of our time talking about one, the crediting of our sin to our account, which seems like it ought to be pretty straightforward, but I think we're going to see it's not as straightforward as we might guess. Uh, the, the center point, the, the, the primary place where that is discussed is Romans 5. If you're sitting in an overstuffed chair with a cup of coffee, go get your Bible. Hit pause. Go get your Bible and turn to Romans 5. Romans 5 is the central passage in the New Testament that discusses imputation, and it begins at verse 12. And listen for this concept of, uh, of guilt being um, assigned, being imputed to us. Verse 12, therefore, just as sin came into the world through one man and death through sin, so death spread to all men because all sinned. For sin indeed was in the world before the law was given, but sin is not counted where there is no law. Yet death reigned from Adam to Moses, even over those whose sinning was not like the transgression of Adam, who was a type of the one who is to come. That's tough stuff there. Uh, you're, to, you're to be uh, excused if, if after about the first phrase you had trouble following that. And so I want to work through it very briefly. Therefore, just as sin came into the world through one man, that one man obviously being Adam, that's, that's pretty easy to grasp. huh? He was the first man. He was also the first sinner. And death through sin. Death is the penalty for sin. God told Adam, in the day you eat of it, you shall surely die. Crime and punishment, eh? Uh, and, and so death came to Adam because of that sin. And so death spread to all men, all subsequent generations. Why? He answers that. Because all sinned. Sin entered through Adam. Death is the penalty. All of us die because we all sinned. Um, there, are, there are three deaths. Huh? Physical death, spiritual death, and eternal death. The moment we're born, we begin to die. It's just a matter of how quickly that happens. We are born dead in our trespasses and sins. A, a fairly clear, obvious, and often spoken of truth in the Bible. So we're born to die physically. We're born spiritually dead. And then those who don't receive Christ as their Savior will die eternal death, the second death, okay? We're, we're doing okay so far. Now, it's at verse 13 where it gets a little tricky. You cannot have a crime unless there's a statute. For example, if there's no speed limit, the cop can't pull me over for speeding. There has to be a posted speed limit. If the law doesn't say, 
I can't take money out of the cash register in the grocery store. If it doesn't define that as stealing, then I can't be arrested and charged and tried and convicted of theft. You, you, see that, you see that crime and punishment can only happen where there's a statute that forbids a certain behavior. I'm going to read verse 12 again and then go into verse 13. Therefore, just as sin came into the world through one man and death through sin, and so death spread to all men because all sinned, for sin was indeed in the world before the law was given. Well, wait a minute. How can that be? If there's no law, we just said, uh, if there's no statute that says don't do this or you must do that, then how can there be sin? Um, He says, for sin was indeed in the world before the law was given at Moses. But sin is not counted where there is no law. That's what we just said. Yet death reigned from Adam to Moses, even over those whose sinning was not like the transgression of Adam. It's, It's obvious that people died between Adam and Moses. The statutes were all given. The Mosaic law was given with Moses. The only other statute prior to that that was given by God was Adam, don't eat that fruit. Well, we didn't sin like Adam did. Nobody did. The people subsequent to Adam, between Adam and Moses, did not eat the fruit. That wasn't an issue. How come they died? That's Paul's point here. Sin was indeed in the world before the law was given. We know it was because people died. Sin was indeed in the world before the law was given, but sin is not counted where there's no law. And yet, death reigned from Adam to Moses, even over those whose sinning was not like the transgression of Adam. I hope you understand that now. I don't want to belabor it. I'm going to assume that you get it. The question is, why did people between Adam and Moses die. Death is the punishment for sin. Um, Sin can only be imputed when there's a statute. And until we get to Moses, there's no statute except for don't eat the fruit. And they didn't do that. So why did death reign? He answered that question in, in verse 12. So let's go back and take a closer look at verse 12. Before we do, Before we answer the question, how is it that sin, Adam's sin, was imputed to us? What's going on here? And I'll I'll tell you that there are three views. Boy, I've done a lot of this already, haven't I? Three views of how this happened. The first is the Arminian view, and it's called that because there was a theologian named Arminius. um, Very old, uh, way back, way back. And he said that Adam was our bad example, that that is the effect that Adam had on us. And once we've sinned, what happens is we have followed Adam in that bad example and Adam's guilt is imputed to us. At the point when we act like Adam did and there were people between Adam and Moses that did that and we continue to do that, when we follow uh, Adam's bad example, his guilt is imputed to us. That stretches it, okay? I mean, that's just, yeah. Um, That, however, is the view of uh, Arminianism, a.k.a. Wesleyanism, a.k.a. Pentecostals, the holiness movement, and so forth. 
The second view is called the federal view, and it says that Adam was, in effect, our representative head, sort of like we have in Washington, D.C., if you're living in America. Um, they vote, and whatever they vote is then um, binding on us. That God decreed, uh, God entered into a covenant and decreed that whatever Adam did was going to be binding on all his descendants because he was our representative head. And when he voted to sin, his vote was determinative for all of his descendants, including you and me. The imputation then is judicial. Remember at the beginning we said there's real and judicial. The imputation is judicial because he voted to be disobedient. And as our representative head, that uh, the guilt that he uh, came under is imputed judicially to us. The third view, uh, oh, I, I should say, that federal view is the view of covenant theology. That would be Reformed, Christian Reformed, Presbyterian, so forth. Those, those churches that uh, hold to what is commonly called a covenant theology. The third view is the Augustinian view. And it's called that because it was uh, taught, uh, written about by a guy named, okay, here we got to make a choice, Augustine or Augustine. I think Augustine is probably used by people smarter than me. Um, I always call the guy Augustine because that looks like it should be that. And he says that, um, he says the Bible says, okay, he says the Bible says that uh, Adam was our seminal head. Uh, you understand the meaning of the word seminal in this context. That we were seminally in Adam and that what he did is passed down to us. If you could see a picture, uh, I don't see it, but many people have commented and say, I look like my dad. Now, my dad's been with the Lord for what? Five years, I think. Um, but people used to comment that we looked alike. I, I didn't think uh, we looked alike, but but people said it, so there you go. I do know that McDonald's, um, by and large, have big ears and big noses, and many of us are tall and thin. Uh, that That's sort of the McDonald look, and, and this sort of doofus look about us, okay? Um, that I have two eyes, a nose, two ears, and am tall and thin because my ancestors were like that. My grandfather, I've got uh, some pictures of my grandfather, my paternal grand, looked like that. I've got pictures of his parents, looked like that. Um, Adam, we look like Adam. I, I don't know what Adam looked like in terms of how tall was he? What did he weigh? Uh, was he large-framed or skinny like me? I don't know, but the point is, if you could do a DNA test, if you could do a 23andMe test, you would find out that I am genetically linked to Adam and that my physical characteristics come from Adam. Uh, I, I'm linked from Adam. He is my seminal head regarding my uh, physical appearance. The Bible teaches us, we'll see in a minute, the Bible teaches us that Adam is our seminal head, not only in our material body, but in our immaterial spirit, that we get that. Now, you, you can't do a 23andMe test on our, uh, 
on our spiritual nature. But the Bible teaches that we get it from Adam. And let me show you how that happens. In order to do that, we're going to have to get technical for just a little bit. And as I say that, I look at my timer and realize uh, I'm, I'm screaming up on the end of, the, of part one here. So what I'm going to do is I'm going to explain a, a little technicality within Greek. You'll get it. Don't worry about it. And then in part two, we'll talk about how that technicality uh, in, in, informs our understanding of Adam as our seminal head uh, and the imputation of Adam's sin to us. Uh, Greek has this huge, huge verb system. Uh, Portuguese has a big one too, and in many ways, they're similar. Greek has two ways, uh, uh, three ways actually, of referring to things that happened in the past. The first is the aorist, and that is a point action in the past. This morning I ate breakfast. Yesterday I tripped. Uh, a year ago I, a point in the past. That's called the aorist. They also have a tense called the perfect, which refers to habitual action in the past that, that can continue beyond that point. So for example, when I was a child, I rode my bike a lot. That is not point action in the past. That is habitual, habitual action, and it is perfect. Then they have the pluperfect, which is action that happened in the past that continued for a while, but not up to the present time. It, it gets all crazy. Uh, and we don't need to go there a lot now, especially because of our time constraints. But know that the aorist is point action in the past. It refers to a specific time, and it is not continuous action. Okay? Point action in the past. Hang on to that. I hope that there isn't a, a large time gap between you listening to part one and to part two, because we're going to talk about the aorist and Acts 5.12, an imputation of Adam's sin to us, and I think it's going to be clear. So, so let's jump over right now, immediately, okay, to part two.